ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Scott Stevens here. Before we get into today's episode of The Minefield, we just wanted to advise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that our discussion today contains the name of a person who has died. Hello there, hope you're having a great summer wherever you are around the country, indeed the world. I know this goes out as a podcast, which just undoes the summer thing I said. You might be in the middle of a deep freeze winter. Anyway, I hope you're enjoying life wherever you are. Well, Lee Daly is my name, Scott Stevens is my co-host as we delve into the best episodes of The Minefield from 2023. Scott, this was one of those ones where I reckon you start with something that seems like nothing and it, it just became rich, didn't it? Just like an episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, but sure. Look, I loved everything about this episode. I loved the guest that we got because it was serendipity and he was perfect. I loved the way that we ended up coming up with the topic, which was basically you sending me a message, boredom, question mark, I think we need to discuss. And I think yeah. I wrote back something like, sure, and then off we went. The third reason I loved it is I don't think we had any idea what we were talking about until we were about 30 minutes into the conversation. <laughs> I don't know if we should say that. I mean, that's not much of an advertisement. No, but no, no, I, but, but it was... It, reveals, it was a process of discovery. It yeah. was. That's exactly yeah. right. And I think what was nice is simply tarrying in a particular place with people we love, without mm. external stimuli, allowing an object of either common love or common fascination to kind of unfold in front of us. In many respects, I think we were kind of enacting what it is that boredom, if done right, can in fact do for the way that we comport ourselves in the world. And a really important thing for us to discuss in this age, I think, where like, we're basically trying to uncover why boredom is such an essential part of the human condition and an indispensable part of being fully human. And yet it's the one thing we seem terrified of in our age and that we are desperate to avoid at all costs with all manner of stimuli. So there, there was a prescience to it, I think, that was great. It's true. And I think the other thing that we touched on really quite beautifully is the difference between boredom and time-wasting. Mm -hmm. And I think we've become far too convinced that the two equate one another, that being bored means, my God, what else could I be doing? Uh, this is inefficient time. And to, in a very real way, things that are most precious within our common life are those that we discover when we're not being particularly efficient. Do you want to throw it to me? <laughs> it's all right, I will. All right, let's do it. Here's me with more. Do you ever get bored? Yes. Really? Yes, I try to cultivate it. Oh, when does it happen? Uh, I don't, don't say right now. Don't do that. <laughs> um, can I ask what you mean by bored? Because for me, I would distinguish between tedium and boredom, although etymologically and even conceptually, they're probably closely related. Yeah, to I would another. say they're distinct, but there's considerable overlap. Yes, I think that's right. So I think you can be bored as a result of or during tedium. Yes. But you can be bored when things aren't tedious. That's right. I think you know the feeling of boredom, don't you? Mm-hmm. You don't need me to define that for you. Okay, well, if we're talking about the feeling, even for someone like Chekhov, 
boredom is a really complex phenomenon. So, for instance, you've got the boredom of the aristocrats who have nothing to do and so are perpetually caught in this kind of mix of leisure and sloth and decadence, and therefore they're led from affair to affair to affair. Now, that's a type of boredom. Um, Mm. That's a failure to be stimulated by life. You'd also say that that comes down to a fundamental lack of busyness. And in that type of boredom, uh, I would just say a good day's work would cure you. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a lack of vitality and purpose, isn't okay, it? Okay, yes, yes, excellent. But then there are other types of boredom. Chekhov's stories are full of prisons, full of prisons. They might be asylums. Uh, they might be marriages. They might be friendships. They might be provinces where you work really hard during the day and then you just sit in the evenings in front of a barely glowing fire like a vegetable. Um, all of mm-hmm. those are forms of, let's call it the acute awareness of the mere passage of time, the bare ticking of the clock, the day coming, the day going, and nothing ever, ever, ever changing. It's in those circumstances where Chekhov would regard boredom as a kind of existential threat. Uh, His famous play, Ivanov, uh, you know, a professor goes from uh, St. Petersburg from memory and he moves out to the provinces. And it's not very long before that kind of existential boredom takes him over and the play ends with him taking his own life. It's very Chekhovian. But if we're, it is, but if we're talking about boredom as the consciousness of time, the lived consciousness of time and of one's place within it, of things being whether or not I'm an active part of it. And I'm not really active. I am present, but I'm not really active. If one thinks about boredom as being, there's no other stimuli. There's no other noise. You're experiencing maybe not silence, but you're not experiencing, say, meaningful noise. And you've pushed away from yourself where you don't have access to otherwise preoccupying stimuli, nothing to distract you. Um, Then I think that is a type of boredom that can lead to really beneficial moral results. Sure. You haven't answered my question, though. When are you bored? Uh, I'm bored in a good sense, when I'm alone and I've deliberately pushed away from myself distractions. Mm-hmm. I'm bored in a bad sense when I feel like I'm caught with incredibly tedious persons. Oh. Yes. That's that's a failing on my part because... Are you going to name them? <laughs> no. Dear Lord. Um, or Or when the activity that you're involved in is activity for the activity's sake. And Can you... Can you give me an example? Any that get me fired? <laughs> okay. So, well, I think everyone would would relate to that sort of thing in their work, right? Because every job has things that attach to it that answer that description. Yeah. There's paperwork you have to do that you feel you probably shouldn't. There's just unproductive busyness. That's interesting. So you can be busy and bored in that Of situation. course. Of course you can. Yeah, so I think everyone would relate to that. I feel like you would be bored watching certain films or, I mean, you seemed pretty bored the other week when I tried to make you have a conversation about cricket. Oh, cricket would, would almost certainly make me wither into a, into a pile yeah. of dust. Uh, just about every, uh, if, if this is the direction that, that we're going, pretty much every Marvel film I've ever seen has left me profoundly, yeah. I mean, banality bores me. So, uh, so what, Pointless what spectacle, think? pointless spectacle. Yeah, okay. So what do you think then of the saying that boring people get bored? Oh, wow. 
which I think was gesturing towards even if you, when you're watching that Marvel film that you don't like, and what did you call it? Pointless spectacle, et cetera. Mm. That the person who is truly interesting or truly not boring will still be able to find something in there that is interesting or to interest them. Well, see, that's the kind of thing that I would apply to people. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's this famous exchange between Darcy and Elizabeth Bennet, where Darcy, in his kind of, you know, pride, in his prejudice, says to Elizabeth, you must get completely run out of stimuli living where you do, surrounded by the people that you are. And she responds, but people change themselves so much that there's something new to discover every day. Right. So I mean, attentiveness there. Yes, yes. So, so attentiveness can actually proceed from boredom. There's no doubt about it. Attentiveness okay. can proceed. Just, just not in a Marvel film. Uh, well, you see, the, 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 the problem is the superficiality of it, the, the, the yeah, denial but, of depth. But could there be something interesting in that? Yeah, but you'd need to want it. I mean... Yeah, okay. So you just don't want it. Okay. No. Do you Do you accept then the basic premise, though, that boring people get bored? People who, what, close their eyes or close their hearts to otherwise stimulating stimuli? Uh, or are just really so curious that they can't no, I don't. find that no, the interest has to come to them rather than them go to it. No, no, no. Because because boredom properly cultivated can be, in fact, a peaking of interest. It can provide the environment. It can provide the context. Okay, can I can I just sort of push back a, a little bit here? So sure. we we try to keep boredom at bay, I think, by amassing this steady stream of short-term non-teleological distractions. In other words, distractions that come up and the thing that they exist for is to uh, keep at bay one's presence with oneself, one's confrontation with, say, one's inner life, or even just the passage of time. And I I, I do think, interestingly enough, the passage of time is something that's really important to, in fact, confront, because there's all sorts of things that go along with that that are vitally important, such as our sense of finitude. Uh, our sense of both insignificance, but also the importance of humility in the way that we live. The idea that proximate activities that seem not to go anywhere can nonetheless be morally loaded with significance because they are the proper forms of behavior that are conducted within the passage of this type of time. So, for instance, there is never not a time to exercise kindness, consideration, deference, to practice forms of silence, to measure one's words carefully. These are all the forms of proximate conduct, proximate behavior that are done in the shadow of the passage of time within which we are insignificant, which can then fill moments of seeming insignificance with immense significance for the people that are around us. This would be if we wanted to get really philosophically highfalutin. We could say that these are the moments in which transcendence erupts within the mere imminence of the ticking of the clock, the passage of time. I might go further. I might go so far as to say they're perhaps the only moments in which transcendence can be realized. Fabulous. Can I now I have to think can I, about can whether I push or not you I why? agree with that statement. <laughs> okay. Well, it's never stopped you before. Well, no, but see, I no, no, the reason oh, is the re- that's harsh. The reason is, the, Waleed. Not, yeah. Hang on. The reason is there is a glorious uselessness about transcendence about things that are of greatest value. If I think about those moments with my family, those moments with friends that I truly love, that were pure moments of serendipity, 
They were unplanned. They were purposeless in the sense that they didn't serve any agenda. We didn't get anything out of it. And yet, this was the attentiveness to a moment that then led to the seizing of a moment where there's no other agenda on the table. There's nothing else but the mere passage of time, which is why, which is why, incidentally, the way that we so often mediate our friendships, I think, is that we are together, but we're observing a third object, and that our proximate nature to one another, you know, you and me at the Gabba watching, you know, Richmond getting, unfortunately, beaten by the lions, say. Were you bored that night? No, because I was with you. And I wanted to perform yeah. for you. I wanted to show for you that I was interested, even, though, <laughs> even know, though you weren't. Even though I weren't. But, but for me, for me, that doesn't matter, because there are other goods that are being served by that moment. But here's here's my point. There's also something that could never have happened between us by me sitting next to you watching something in common because our proximity to one another serves the fact that we are there at the game. There are moments that are otherwise boring between intimates, between friends, between lovers, between members of a family, where there is no third distraction. There is no third thing. There is no you know, common object that both are looking at, where you are simply together. And that there's that moment of really uncomfortable silence where there is nothing other than the ticking of the clock. And there are things, if you are truly attentive and you truly give yourself over to the moral reality of the other person, there are things in that circumstance, at that moment, that you can discover that erupt moments of real moral transcendence. We are confronted fully by the moral reality of the other person and the meaning, the value that that other person has in your life. They can only be had when there's no third distraction vying for your attention. What about when you're alone, though? I, I think that's actually the most interesting area. Yeah, I agree. Because I think that's the thing that we are systematically eliminating from our lives mm. and feel so uncomfortable with it. That's the thing that's causing the listener to listen to this show right now because they have nothing else to do. And so they, if they're listening as a podcast or they've just turned on the radio, they need something. They need the stimulus. The era of smartphones, I think, has just shown this. It's probably the most extreme manifestation of it in human history, isn't it? This ability that we have to source a stimulus at any given moment. This is why you watch people. I'm not exempting myself from this, by the way. You watch people in a cafe if they're with a friend and their friend goes to the bathroom, what's the first thing they'll do? Mm, Immediately. That's There's right. almost no delay. They'll pick up their phone. It cannot be that everyone's doing that because there is an urgent situation brewing that they are aware of and they have to check. I mean, like, you know, they're checking the baby monitor at home or some equivalent of that. It can't be that, right? What we're seeking is an easy stimulus. Entertain me. Because boredom is an uncomfortable feeling and our world gives us the tools to avoid it, really, can, at, at any given moment. Can I give our listeners a little reading assignment? We'll, we'll include the notes and the link to this on our website. I don't know if you saw it, Willie. There was a wonderful, and by wonderful, I mean it was atrocious, but it was beautifully written and stimulating and probably illustrates precisely what it is you were just saying. A wonderful little piece by Ian Bogost, a, a technology writer, who contributed editor to The Atlantic, called What Did People Do Before Smartphones? It's kind of an extraordinary piece where he tries to remember what did we do before we had smartphones, pre-2000. And as he approaches the end, just to put not too fine a point on it, I cannot overemphasize, he writes, 
how little there was to do before we all had smartphones. A barren expanse of empty time would stretch out before you, waiting for the bus or for someone to come home or for the next scheduled event to start. Someone might be late or take longer than expected, but no notice of such a delay would arrive. So you'd stare out the window, hoping to see some sign of activity down the block. You'd pace or sulk or (laughs) stew. I mean, it's an accurate description of the existential consequences of the proliferation of handheld distractions within our lives. Right. Well, what it doesn't capture is the richness of the interiority of that. That's right. That's right. So you actually don't, I don't think, stare out the window waiting for something to happen. You stare out the window maybe looking to see if something's happening. And then after a period of time, you kind of stop seeing that and you get the stares, right? Everyone's familiar with this phenomenon where you're looking because your eyes are open and you guess you can't help looking at something, but you're not really looking. You're just staring into some distance. There's no focal point, really. It doesn't feel like, anyway, for what you're looking at because you've now retreated internally. It's Mm. all about your thoughts. It's all about being with yourself. And it's actually in those moments that the most productive, creative, even spiritually insightful and uplifting moments are possible. This is why... So many spiritual traditions have meditation or prayer or all these sorts of things built into the practice, because actually it's only by entering such states that look externally like states of boredom or nothingness. It's it's only really by doing that that you unlock something else, something richer, something deeper, something more profound. Uh, I must have said this before because it's just it was an arresting thing to hear. But Matt Bellamy, who's the frontman, guitarist, pianist for Muse, this sort of, you know, outrageously flamboyant English rock band, he, he said that the times that were most productive for him writing were when he suddenly found himself alone with nothing to do and wasn't expecting to be in that situation. Mm, that's right. And you can imagine that scenario. Whenever I think about that, I think of an airport. Mm. I went to catch my flight. It's now delayed three hours. Mm. I'm stuck in this place. I'm overseas. I can't go anywhere. I've got nothing to do. They're actually the moments that he would have his most interesting musical ideas or or at least his, some of his interesting musical ideas because those things, that sort of level of creativity in that case or insight or whatever is only possible once the rest is removed, yeah. once the distractions aren't there. Maybe you can't write a good song in an age where it's there's always something to entertain you at your fingertips. Can I add two um, slight qualifications to that? It's, it's not a disagreement at all. Hopefully it's just two minor footnotes. Um, you know when I'm not bored? I'm not bored when I'm doing the dishes. I'm not bored. Why is that? Okay, and I'm not bored when I do gardening, both of which I both love and hate, but I find any opportunity I possibly can to do both because... When you are doing these things that are physically engaging, not strenuous, but you're doing something with your hands and you have a task. You don't have to think step by step by step through the task. That's when your mind can go elsewhere. So when I'm gardening, when I'm doing dishes, I will deliberately, assiduously not be listening to anything else, not watching anything else. Because those are the times when my body can be in other words, it's very, very, very similar to adopting various postures in prayer, isn't it? Where your body is doing something that it knows already, and the purpose of what the body is doing at that particular moment is to liberate the mind from the concerns of the body. And so, for, for me, those tedious, those quotidian activities that have a, uh, a set limit, that aren't overly demanding or strenuous, 
but that allow the mind, I think you're right, to go inwards. Those are the types of things that we should be clutching at, as if maybe not our lives, but at least our souls depended on it. You, you kept raising the issue of the window, that sort of, you know, vaguely staring out the window. There's another famous example, though. Um, I've talked about it before. Iris Murdoch has this wonderful moment in her uh, great book, The Sovereignty of Good, where she describes sitting at her desk, being roiled over some, perhaps, insult to her reputation or her social standing. And in an agitated state, she's looking out the window, and what does she see? She sees a kestrel, a bird floating, flying. She wasn't focused on anything else. It grabbed her attention. It draws her out of herself. And she actually describes this, being led out of oneself to a reality that does not exist for you, but that exists for itself and invites you to come and see, not to consume, but to witness. She says this becomes a process of what she describes as unselfing, where we're drawn out of ourselves, out of our own orbit, if you like, to another reality. And I think part of the paradox here, I'm not sure if you mean it, but I I certainly do. One of the things that happens when we attend, when we cultivate the conditions of the inner life, where we're not afraid of our exposure to the ticking of the clock and the passage of time, our finitude, our moral obligations, our consistency with ourself, for instance. One of the things that happens when we go inward, if we're doing it right, (laughs) if I can put it that way, then there can, in fact, you know, paying attention to the inner life can lead to, paradoxically, a sort of unselfing of the self, Mm -hmm. where the preoccupations of the ego, our reputation, our concerns, our worries, our cares— come to shrink and shrink and shrink, and we end up being led to something bigger than ourselves, more enduring than ourselves. And it can only be through being wholly present to oneself in the very act of perhaps even being bored or overwhelmed by the tedium of life. But only present in a way that isn't about serving appetites. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That seems to me the key difference. And and that's what we do now. It's what the smartphone era has allowed us to do, but it's also, I think, what our culture lionizes and has set us up to do. And that is, you know, as well as just being, you know, a human instinct from a sort of more animalistic dimensions of ourselves. It's the constant service of appetites. Mm. You see this in a lot of ways, you know, the way that um, appetites become self-justifying in our culture. Well, there's an appetite here. It should just be served. It should be service. That's a market to be created, you know, whatever. That where you're in the constant service of appetites, in the end, there's a certain hollowing out So boredom becomes not just something we rarely experience, but something that's intolerable because there's an alternative, there's a way to alleviate it. And in the process, we don't really pay attention to or mind the fact that we're thinning out our experience in some way, or we're thinning out the depths of our thoughts and so on, because, hey, I can scroll and this is an entertaining video that might only go for five seconds or whatever. And all sorts of things that we've discussed a lot on the show come with that, you know, the difference between reading and seeing or whatever mm. it was. Reading um, and looking, yeah. And looking, yeah. Um, or hearing and listening. Or mm, you know, that's these right. that's right. these sorts of distinctions, they exist in those moments of what we might call boredom. And boredom might impel us, especially if it's not easily solved. Wasn't there a study about how the 
developmental benefits of children only having very few toys as opposed to many because of the imagination. It puts them in a state of boredom effectively and then they have to solve it and they solve it by imagining something or creating something with the few things that they have. Creativity works from constriction, right? right. If, If I give you all the options, actually you become less creative in so many ways. If I forced you to write a song using only one note, you would have to come up with all creative sorts of creative ways to figure out how to make that interesting, right? It would unleash a certain kind of creativity. When we eliminate that systematically from the the day-to-day of our lives, the, the minutiae of our lives, mm-hmm. there's all sorts of profound implications for that. But I feel like we're inattentive to that because the servicing of appetites is actually the thing that prevails. That's the that's the dominant thing. That's the self-justifying yep. Couldn't agree aspect more. of it. All right, well... I'm bored with this. Let's get to a guest. <laughs> and our guest is Stan Grant. He's a Wiradjuri and Camilleroy man. He's a distinguished journalist, author, one of Australians, in my opinion, finest public intellectuals. He's recently been appointed as Vice Chancellor's Chair of Australian Indigenous Belonging at Charles Sturt University. Stan, I can't believe it's taken us this long <laughs> to have you on the show. What a great well, joy it is to have you. Thank you for being with us. And and what a subject, a subject that takes us in so many different directions. And I was just really fascinated by some of the things you were talking about there, you know, the idea of finitude, the idea of, of transcendence, the idea of our insignificance. And remember Joseph Brodsky, of course, the um, the poet who, who spoke in praise of boredom, and I suppose we're speaking... As a graduation in, address. Yeah, as a graduation address. What a and wonderful... <laughs> in, inviting people to realise their their insignificance right. in the finitude of life and the importance of boredom that he called our window onto time. And he certainly raised a lot of things, not a lot of them that I would necessarily pursue or agree with, but he did open a lot of things that I've been contemplating and just listening to your your conversation there and how I would define boredom. And I suppose for me, at an existential level, I mean, I'm bored often by many things, but at an existential level, it would be the the absence of the contemplation of God. Hmm. And I think where, where Brodsky was getting at in speaking into, you know, what Weber would call the iron cage of modernity is the absence of something else that renders us insignificant. And yet in that insignificance, we find a significance. And I suppose for me as a, as a First Nations person, the idea of time, the idea of ancestry, the idea of country and God lead me not into a place of boredom or a place that is mundane, but a place that is rich with my insignificance and significance that is not transcendent, but is imminent. And I think in that, we open up a really deep discussion about what it is to be human and to be modern and the the existential malaise that sits at the heart of of that question. What is it to be human and to be modern? Well, uh, yeah, I only return to it's to service appetites. <laughs> that's, mm. kind of, that's kind of where I know. And distraction, right? And distraction. Yeah. You know, the, Marshall Sullins, the anthropologist, now late anthropologist, looked a lot of this schism between transcendence and, and imminence. And he says, essentially, that the modern project is about transcendence, is about putting God into a supernatural realm that we then fill that space with ourselves rather than, say, as a First Nations person, the idea of God as being imminent, as God of of being a part of everything that 
we do and everything invested in meaning. And he summed it up in a, in a really pithy phrase, but one that really resonated with me, and that is that being there is being there. Hmm. Whereas if I was to look at our distracted age, while well, even the things that you were talking about, the endless entertainment, the looking out the window, picking up the phone when the, the friend goes to the bathroom, being there is often taking a photo or being yep. there is mm-hmm. looking out the window, but is being there being there? What is interesting though, I think you're right to bring the religious aspect into the conversation because this is, if it's not about the distractions, then what is it about? And you mm. necessarily end up in a supernatural realm of some description or at least an abstract one. But the the idea, I mean, obviously I'm more familiar with this in the Islamic context than any mm. First Nations context and even a Christian context, which Scott can probably talk about. But the idea that's beneath all this is actually that's the most real space. Mm. That That's the space that is, if you can fully enter it, the most vivid. Mm. The one that has the fewest illusions and mirages and so on. And then it's those things that seem imminent. What what might we call it? A false imminence? Mm. Um, They are physically proximate. They are immediate. They're in our face. They're actually the distractions. You know what it is? It's kind of the matrix, isn't it? that, That which feels concrete and real is the unreal bit. And that which requires some kind of deeper penetration to reach, that's mm. the real bit. A deeper, a deeper imminence. You know, I think, I think it's really interesting, the ideas of imminence and transcendence, because I think we, we're invited in the absence of God, we are invited to reach for the transcendent. And the transcendent may be getting up at dawn to go down and watch a sunrise but then taking a photo of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is the, you know, the act of bringing that into yourself. But it's not a deeper act, is it? And, you know, I think um, Miriam Rose Ungermeer, a wonderful First Nations thinker and philosopher and someone who bridges, as I do, with Christianity and our First Nations belief, talks about Dadidi and Dadidi as a, as a theological concept, as a spiritual idea of sitting in deep time and deep silence. And I suppose it's not a long way removed from the idea of be still and know that I am God or or in John 15, remain in me. You no longer live with me, but in me. And I, and I, think, I, I think in many ways we're perpetually bored. We walk through a world of endless amusement that can strip real meaning from something, when a sunrise can be reduced to a photograph, when love can be reduced to a television program like Married at First Sight or something, where we're endlessly amused, but we're not invested in meaning. I think one of the things Joseph Brodsky talked about that really interests me as well, and I think as a First Nations person, it really goes to the heart of, of our crisis in our own country, and that is the idea of time. And time, as Brodsky talked about it, is rendered as repetition. Mm. And the linear idea of time that we reduce to units of time and then reduce people to units of productivity in time. Hence the matter of efficiency. How do we spend an hour? Spend an hour. Consider then that with a a First Nations idea of an, as William Stanner, the anthropologist, put it, an every when a constant presence of past, present and future, a constant time. But in that rupture, we get a crisis. And, you know, it was captured 
brilliantly by David Maljali, who is an Aboriginal painter, philosopher. He was known as the, the Bush Professor. And he wrote this beautiful poem. And he said, once I was past and future, now I am only the present, today, the moment. Mm. And that is hard to bear with no past, no future. It, it really does sit at the crisis that I often feel as a, as a First Nations person being out of country traversing a world of modernity that I'm able to navigate, but not navigate wholly, successfully and spiritually. And when when I return back to country, it isn't just the, the act of being on country, but being reunited by time invested in meaning and not time as productivity. And I think that is a really critical distinction to make. And I think it leads to a lot of the malaise and the crisis we see amongst my own people. But then you can also see that malaise more broadly about people who who measure time, fill time, capture time, but don't sit in time. Yeah. And so it's still possible, even with this this deeper understanding of time or this different understanding of time, it's still possible to waste it. It's just... yes that the things you would call a waste become quite different. So time still becomes the most valuable resource that humans have. Mm. The question is, what is the best way, to continue the economic metaphor, what is the best way of investing it? Mm. Um, I actually wonder if what boredom does, and maybe this links to a point that Scott was making before, but what boredom does... Maybe it's the wrong way to approach it. It's not that you stay bored. It's that boredom triggers something that's far richer. Mm, that's right. It's that, it's that you alleviate your boredom, but you do it in a way that isn't simply about stimulus response, right? It's, it's about finding a way of through it. You do it, um, you, you do it in a way that's it. non-narcotic, effectively. Yes, that's, yeah. a, that's a good way of, mm. of putting it. Mm. Yeah. Or even, you know, anesthetizing or something. But the, the passage of time is acutely felt at those moments of boredom, which mm. thereby underscore its value. You see and you feel its passage and you feel its loss in a way. There's a, you know, the very, very famous, widely recited uh, Quranic chapter, you know, by, by the passage of time, human beings are in loss. Mm. That's a deep, it's not just, oh, you've lost some time. It's that your state is one of loss through the passage of time, and then it goes on and says, except for. So, who, you know, and then articulate. So, who are the people for whom the passage of time is not, it doesn't have to be lost. No, it, it just doesn't. depends how you've spent it. it, it um, I, I think that is absolutely critical, Waleed. And I think, again, to draw a distinction between time invested in productivity or measured in productivity. And in a sense, Brodsky was getting to this. He was sort of saying to people, well, you know, your insignificant time comes to an end. Locate yourself, embrace that boredom to produce something of meaning. Yet, whenever I feel a sense of conflict, it is when the production of time clashes with the meaning of time. Let me give you a really clear example of this rather than an abstract one. My father... Um, who hasn't been well, lives in a town, small town in New South Wales, where there is a medical centre at a hospital five minutes down the road. In terms of productivity, in terms of spending time, it would be much easier for him to get in the car and be driven there and be treated and then come back and, and have time out on his hands. 
But there is an Aboriginal medical service an hour and a half away. A nurse, an Aboriginal medical service nurse, will travel to Dad and and see him, or sometimes we would take Dad there. He doesn't value the productivity of time. He's not losing time. He is investing that time in a cultural meaning that is actually going to make him well. And and I think I can take that a step further. And if we look at the, in a practical sense, one of the issues in closing the gap in Australia is that we measure it by productivity. The Productivity Commission actually measures the quantitative and qualitative impact of closing the gap. And we see year after year, the despairing statistics that show we are just not doing it because we can't measure it productively. We must measure it in meaning. You can build a medical service five minutes away. Is that going to have as much meaning as one an hour and a half away where time becomes not loss, but becomes purpose and connection? And I think that goes a lot to the malaise that we find ourselves in modernity, convenience often trumps meaning. Mm. Wow. So I have a thesis. I don't know if it works. And I'm hoping the two of you can either pat me on the back or set me straight. Our form of transcendence today is technological. We have Mm. no other form of transcendence. Uh, It's through technology that we hold at bay our fear of obsolescence. Uh, Our phones become obsolete so that we don't have to. Uh, And then, of course, there's the whole thing about techno-utopianism, that, you know, with these advances, with these improvements to human cognition, to human brain functioning, to, to, you know, through AI, whatever it might be, this is how we will continue to get better. So we've, to some extent, we've externalized our faith in transcendence or our hope for transcendence or what transcendence might mean. As a result of that, the way that we then experience transcendence is through the perpetual denial of the mere passage of time. Uh, and what you were saying before, Willie, time, if you like, exacting a kind of loss upon us, which means that our distractions, technological and otherwise, end up becoming various ways not of experiencing transcendence, but of forgetting, forgetting the reality. Of killing time rather than understanding time. That that's killing us. Yeah, precisely right. So if, if we can then push this analogy one step further, I don't just mean it as a cute metaphor. Uh, I, I actually think it's morally incredibly serious. There are different ways of understanding, if you like, the moral dimension of transcendence within the imminent plane. One is roughly a Christian way, which is the person whom I help, the person with whom I break bread, this is Christ. Uh, This too is Christ. In this person's presence, I'm in the presence of the divine. Therefore, uh, the following obligations, the following deference, the following consideration follows. Uh, The other way of registering transcendence within the imminent frame, in other words, just within daily life, within our interpersonal Uh, engagements, would be, roughly speaking, a kind of Jewish sense. And again, it's just very roughly speaking. But if we take someone like, say, Emmanuel Levinas or even, say, Martin Buber as a guide, Mm. there the most important thing isn't that the other person embodies Mm. the divine, Mm. but rather it's that the moral space that needs to be preserved at all costs 
is what Buber calls mm. the space in between. I and thou. I and thou. Mm. So the space in between then becomes the cultivation of the atmosphere within which we can be together. I, I had a wonderful, wonderful experience of this just recently. I've been spending a lot of time back on on country and feeling the the spiritual ancestral connection with that. And I walked into the pub to have dinner and um, there was a, for want of a better phrase, a white Australian woman there uh, with her daughter and we got chatting and she started telling me about growing up and she told me about Aboriginal friends who would take her out to show her various paintings and the rocks and so on. And she turned to me and she said, there's a real connection here, isn't there? Oh, and wow. you know what? And, and, and you know what's, that? Well, you know what's beautiful about this? And I experience this a lot when I'm back on country where I remove politics from the discussion and speak. My father has this beautiful phrase when he was talking about teaching Wiradjuri language. And he said, language is not who you are, it is where hmm. you are. And when I, people, when I meet people where we are, the conversation and the relationship changes. And I think one of the problems in the way we have met each other in Australia, and again, it comes to time and the idea of time and time historicized, is that for Aboriginal people, with the rupture of our relationship to a permanent time that David Maljali talked about, I have all I have now is a present. In the present, we render ourselves visible historically. And often the narrative of that history is a narrative of you know, your point, Waleed, of loss, of trauma, of conflict. And of course, when you meet people across that, they have their own narrative of that history and time, which may be very different to yours, and they become irreconcilable. And yet when I switch that and I speak about where we are and a relationship to place, we meet each other on another plane. And I think that's where Buber is getting to. I think that I think that's where Spinoza was getting mm, to with true. Being in God, I mean, Spinoza is often seen as an atheist thinker, and yet others have called him someone who's intoxicated by God. But he he looked at the idea of a of a oneness and the idea of being in God, and I think that creates for me it has created a healthy space to meet people outside of a historicized time. Do you know what's so fascinating about that? I think of the Quranic description of the believers. And it talks about the fact they neither fear nor do they grieve. Mm -hmm. And and it's such a fascinating, because some mm -hmm. of the commentary I've heard about that is that's to do with the relationship of time. F fear is located in the future. Fear is what happens when you are focused on the future. And grieving or grief is what happens when you're focused on the past. Mm. There is something about those who can inhabit a perpetual present, which isn't to say... It does. It still they, has a past and a future. Hmm. Yes. But it, yes. And it's, it's not to say that they, you know, are rash about the future or, you know, it's not, it's not carelessness. And it isn't forgetting. No. But it's, it's also not being enslaved mm. by time because all you can experience is the moment. Like that's the only thing you are literally experiencing in a moment. And that the closer you get, to that. I mean, this is kind of what people are talking about with mindfulness, isn't it? Um, yeah. That you reduce everything to... And mindfulness, I think, is it's an interesting phenomenon in our culture because it's obviously serving a need. There's something that is not being serviced, that it is reaching for. But the bit that our culture never quite answers is mindful of what? Mm -hmm. And so it ends up being environment or your 
particularly think about your breathing or all those sorts of things. But it's trying to achieve a mindfulness or a presentness that isn't quite attached to a telos, that isn't quite mm. attached to something So, So we'll take fixed. time out of the day to go to a yes. yoga class or watch a sunrise, but how do you bring that imminence into your life in a meaningful way? That is, that is present constant, but also yep. obviously comes out of a past and a future. It's a beautiful right, which, idea, which, Walid. Which, which you can't do if you're taking time out to do this because what no, that's doing is that's putting something in its box. In a way, it's kind of, I'm, gonna, this is, I'm not going to be bored because I'm doing something. <laughs> okay, but, um, but again, this, this raises, I think, a really interesting point that if we go back to Iris Murdoch's idea of, of unselfing as, as kind of a non-distracted being drawn out of oneself through the practiced faculty of attentiveness. So I'm, I'm not actively looking at something, but I'm allowing the moral reality of something else hmm. through a kind of practiced sort of, you know, inhabiting of silence or even the embracing of boredom, whatever we want to call it. It's that moral reality that begins, begins drawing me not simply to the space that the other person occupies, but again, going back to this idea of the space in between. What I think is so important, and I read this very much in, in what you were just saying, Stan, what's so important about the moral status of the space in between is that it's non-acquisitive. Mm. It's non-consumptive. Simone Weiss says all vice, all depravity, nearly everything comes back to our desire to consume mm. that to which we should be attentive. Mm. And I think that what then happens if we think about the moral significance of the space in between the space in between us, so being alert to allowing the moral reality of someone or of our common home to draw us out. If we then fill that space in between, this goes to your point, Stan, if we spill, fill that space in between with a technological medium, I need to snap this. I need to mm. capture it for perpetuity so I don't forget it. That, again, is another one of the ways that technology comes to take the place of transcendence. So is that, is that what we are afraid of? We may call it boredom, but what we are afraid of, in fact, is going inside ourselves and finding the other, to look at Buber's idea. Mm. But is, is that what we are afraid of here, that it is so much easier to be distracted or even bored in that distraction than it is to be attentive and conscious of your insignificance, but in that insignificance, find a space in time to meet each other and truly meet each Is that what we are really afraid of? And technology alienates us and gives us a reason not to make those connections. Look, I, I think that's part of it, Stan. The other thing, which unfortunately you know, we've spoken about previously, the moral reality of another person, the moral reality of, say, our common home even, that's a very difficult thing to cultivate a lived attentiveness to because you don't know where that conversation, where so that we moral encounter. Politics. We, we turn, turn it into, it into politics. politics so yeah. that the other person doesn't, isn't a moral reality. You know, the other person is a fill-in, an avatar for an abstraction. And when we, again, insert technology in between us, what is a moral reality drawing us outside of ourselves then becomes, if you like, a mirror, a black mirror even, to coin the, where, whereby we can be assured of our rightness, assured mm. of our position, assured of our place in history, assured of our eternality even, and reduce the other person to someone who can be comprehended, who can be consumed, who can be defeated, who can finally be put in their place or done away with altogether. And, and um, if, if boredom invites us to contemplate that meaning of time and also 
our insignificance, which is, as Simone Weil would say as well, our significance, mm. if it invites us to contemplate God, however we want to articulate that or however we want to imagine that, then that that creates a space to, for us to meet each other outside of the politicised, historicised space mm. that is often incommensurable. Exactly right. Stan Grant is our guest today. Um, he's taken a break from the media. I guess he's got bored, so he came back. Professor of <laughs> Australian Indigenous Belonging at Charles I've State been University. bored, so I've been thinking, I'm bored, therefore I am. Maybe that. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? It's, oh, this is a, it's a silly question, but it's one I want to ask because I suspect you'll have a quite deep answer to it. Once you've let, I mean, you know, you famously took out time out mm. of the media. I don't know how permanent or temporary that'll be. Maybe you don't know, but are it's you present? Bored? Have you been bored? <laughs> no, 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 I have not. And mm. and let's be serious about this for a moment. The reason, and I've I've spoken about this. And I know you guys did a a wonderful episode about this to really contemplate the thing that people did not want to actually confront, and that is the complicity of the media. Ergo, my own complicity in what was playing out. And I've had to really contemplate that. And part of my contemplation and going back to country, which it's too pithy to say it heals you, it connects me. Part of that contemplation is to imagine a space where I can meet my detractors in a way that does not have to have us at this irresolvable conflict and this conversation grows out of that. If all we are going to do is repeat, to use Joseph Brodsky's idea, to fill the repetition of time with historicised space and politics, then we are going to have a recipe for unending conflict. And what I've tried to imagine is a space, a realm beyond that, where I can meet the woman in the pub where we are. And I don't care whether she votes Liberal, National, Labor. That becomes less important than our I and thou connection in space. So I haven't, I haven't been bored. And going to a place that some people may see as boring because it is less stimulating, um, there is less noise, there is less distraction, is actually, for me, filled with far greater meaning. And that's what I really needed to do and to reframe because I can't continually meet people in a historical, political space that repeats conflict. I must try to meet them in a space where we can see each other. Stan, Chekhov, we talked about Chekhov a little bit earlier. In his wonderful short story, The Kiss, it's a story about a young, kind of self-deprecating, insecure of himself, Russian soldier who gets mistaken in a dark dance for a woman's boyfriend. She kisses him. And it just, I mean, talk about a moment of transcendence. It's mm. all that he can think about. But the experience has left him mute. It's too much. He can't say. Then sitting in a fire one night with his fellow soldiers, he tells them about this amazing experience. And his telling of it lasts about 90 seconds. <laughs> and he's immediately shattered. He's disappointed. I thought I was going to talk about this until dawn, he says. So you speak and you write for a living. I mean, you, you do it not just as a profession, as we talked about in another occasion. It, feels, mm. it often feels to me like you write, you speak. Or, yeah. yeah, it is a vocation. You, you do it because you have to, not because, mm. not because you necessarily want to. But I do wonder, over the last few months, and even outside of the last few months, 
are you filled with things that are so transcendent, filled with thoughts and considerations, convictions, discoveries that are so big that on one level, of Mm. course you want to write about it. Mm. But you know that as soon as you do, something's going to be lost. Yes, it's it's reduced. This is part of boredom, I think, allowing Mm. the bigness to stay interior. Mm. Is that something? Do you experience this or is this something that you've been more conscious of? No, I do. And I'm very conscious of it and trying to take those things from the imminent space into a public space without them being reduced or simplified or weaponized, um, where one word out of place can bring the whole thing tumbling down. I'm very conscious of that. And I suppose for me, the, the truest expression of those big truths and that imminent spirituality and wonder is poetry. Mm. And people who can find the poetic space to convey those things rather than the political space. And I gravitate, and I'm finding myself increasingly gravitating to that space as a place to meet people and render ideas that are not subject to the vicissitudes of political debate, you know, the the reductionism. That's been something I'm increasingly conscious of. And then also, when to stay silent? Mm, Do we have to express everything? (laughs) That may be difficult for people like us. Mm. Well, for professions like ours... Even more than people like I mean, you know, there's our character yeah, yeah, that might yeah. make it difficult. But you know, what I mean, there's something about being professionally yeah. compelled to and filling the space. Yeah, and then what the effect that has on, I guess, the and, soul. And rather. is it is it meaningful? Yeah, mm. yeah. Let's not go down that road. Anyway. It'll be the end of the show forever. Stan, wonderful to have you oh, on. Oh, I've enjoyed like, it. Thank you so like much. Like Scott says, it feels like it should have happened a long time ago, and it's amazing that it didn't. Uh, I guess it only took you to leave for you to come back. We only love you when you're far away. Right. <laughs> uh, Stan Grant is Ridgery and guys. Camilla Roy Mann, Professor of Australian Indigenous Belonging at Charles Sturt University, uh, of course, famously, of this parish uh, at the ABC, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is now at an end. I hope you were stimulated throughout. See you next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.